and welcome to The Bunker. I am your host, Alex Andreu. We have seen four prime ministers in the six years since the Brexit referendum. Just as importantly, this week we welcome our sixth Chancellor of the Exchequer in that same period. My guest today could not be better placed to guide us through the challenges awaiting Kwasi Kwarteng as he takes charge of the Treasury. Sir Howard Davies is an economist and author. He is the former director of the London School of Economics, former head of the Financial Services Authority and current chairman of the NatWest Group. His latest book, The Chancellors, Steering the British Economy in Crisis Times, should be required reading for anyone interested in how the sausage is actually made. Welcome to the bunker, Howard Davies. Thank you. Howard, on Tuesday, you told the Today programme that government needs to think very hard about whether it can afford large-scale interventions and simultaneous across-the-board tax cuts. But... You also said it is important not to talk ourselves into a worse situation than we are actually in. Give us a potted summary of the short-term challenges for the UK that is neither boosterish for the sake of it nor depressive. <laughs> yes, that is, a, that is a challenge. It's a narrow line to tread, I think. The position that we see in the bank, and that's where I tend to get my Best information, looking at the detail of what's happening to the companies we lend to and to the individuals we bank. Up to now, the signs of strain and stress in people's finances are hard to find. There is no mortgage default. Consumer credit has gone up a bit, but not in an extravagant fashion. And we're not seeing signs of people not being able to pay their monthly payments and that kind of thing. And on the business side, similarly, Loan demand is reasonably strong, but uh, no stronger than you'd expect. In other words, no sign that people are borrowing in order uh, to pay running costs. So at the moment, things are not bad. On the other hand, business confidence is very weak. Consumer confidence is weaker than it's been for a long time. And of course, we can see two clouds on the horizon. The first being the massive rise in energy prices and the government's probably going to do something about that in the next day or two. And the second is rising interest rates, where the Bank of England's already started on a tightening cycle and is likely to continue. Both of those things mm. will slow the economy down. And the question is, how far? In other words, will we just have a period where the economy stutters along, possibly two or three negative quarters, or will we see signs that we are in for a more serious recession. Throughout the book, which you describe as a story of downs and ups, which tickled me, one gets the impression that the Treasury is not an ordinary department in the way one might perceive defence or the Home Office, capable of being fully reshaped by a political boss, but a sort of semi-autonomous creature with an institutional personality and views on its role and a measure of resistance to change. Is that a, a, a fair assessment, a fair impression? And, and is that a good thing? I think it's a fair impression. I think where it derives from is that the Treasury is unique among government departments in not being a spending department. Most of the, well, all the others really, define themselves by the way in which they spend government money on their clients or their creatures, as it were. Whereas the Treasury has to look at both sides of the income and expenditure statement, and it's the only department 
that does. So it does have a different perspective on spending plans. I mean, you'll never find the Ministry of Defence coming along and saying, we'd like less money, please. It just doesn't happen. So the Treasury Mm. is different in that respect. And of course, it also has um, certain particular responsibilities. Uh, The uh, finance bills, you know, don't go to the House of Lords, for example. Um, And the Treasury does have accounting officer responsibilities for government spending. The Treasury Permanent Secretary has to fetch up before the Public Accounts Committee and the Treasury Committee and justify expenditure or indeed tax expenditure, i.e. tax cuts, and has to justify them. So the Treasury does Mm. have certain functions which cause it to have a view which is somewhat independent uh, of the rest of the government. How about the the OBR, the the Office of Budget Responsibility? Much of current discourse relies on, let's say, a fluid understanding of the truth. The existence of a body that seeks to produce factual analysis is often more of an inconvenience to to the government than a help. Might that be a casualty of what's coming? Well, again, I rather hope not. This was an Osborne innovation. And largely considered a good one. Yes, as in the interviews I I did for the book, Alistair Darling, who was Osborne's immediate predecessor, said he wished he'd done it himself, but that Gordon Brown didn't like it. Um, (laughs) So this is something where uh, a number of chances, I mean, Hammond was perfectly happy with it, so was Sunak, I think. Now, they have to operate in a sensitive and sensible way, but they've done so under successive heads. And I think to have an agreed baseline makes a lot of sense. And so I think it's been a useful innovation because it does distinguish between things which, you know, the government can do where it would hope they had a particular effect and things where, you know, you can be certain (laughs) uh, of what that effect is going to be. So I, I don't think that will be changed. I think it would be quite difficult for the government to do that. Um, I mean, it would require legislation because it's got a firm legislative basis. It's not just some bunch of blokes in the Treasury asks for a view. I mean, you know, it's it's got a place in the Constitution. And I think to legislate to remove that constraint would be a bad signal. Yeah, it would be like not having an ethics advisor. Um, (laughs) I want to ask a question on Brexit. For context, you mentioned that you voted against membership of the European communities in the 70s, but that by the 90s you had grown out of your youthful exuberance for splendid isolation. (laughs) Recently, you're quoted as saying that Brexit was a significant mistake. Given how central an influence, and, and we see that throughout the book, given how central an influence the finance sector had been on policy for pretty much four decades, is it surprising how marginal the welfare of the city became, not only during the referendum campaign, but in the years since? It is, rather. Sorting out arrangements for the city post-Brexit is extremely complicated. And it's partly because the European Union itself sees an opportunity to pull back into the European Union financial activity which has been taking place in London and which they think they should have back within the Eurozone. It was bound to be a point of contention and essentially it was very difficult, and I tried to describe this at some length in the book, it was very difficult to find a mechanism to 
get equivalence in the, the jargon, in other words, to get the European Union to accept that the regulatory arrangements in London were equivalent to those in the rest of Europe, and therefore that business could carry on as before. It was very difficult to do that because they said, well, look, that's in the core part of the single market. So unless you're prepared to accept some element of free movement, why would we accept free movement of finance, if you like? You know, the four freedoms are, are tied together. So it was very difficult uh, to do it. But I can't help but agree with the premise of your question, which is that the area of financial services and indeed other business services actually has been the big success story of the UK economy for decades. And yet our negotiation with the European Union post-Brexit seemed to be done on the basis that the most important thing was the manufacturing sector. And I'm not against manufacturing, mm. but it is only 10 or 11% of the economy. And yet all of the negotiating effort was put into that area and none into trying to negotiate things on the services side. And that was, in my view, a, an odd set of priorities. Hi, I'm Katie Riley. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, Donald Trump became the first former U.S. president in history to face a criminal trial. The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. This is not a trial. This is not a an act of criminality. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. This is the story of his first week in court told through the transcripts. Listen now to the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. Is it a bit worrying to see part of that uh, Economists for Brexit small group advising the Trust government? I mean, they are not let's be kind, um, of the mainstream. Is there a danger that fiscal policy, that in the Brexit melee, fiscal policy is being wrested away from pragmatists by ideologues? There is clearly that risk. I mean, I, I feel a little bit ambivalent about this because there is uh, scope, clearly, for some thinking in government which says, well, here we are, it's great, we, we've got to make best advantage of it. And there are some, of course, on the opponents of Brexit who have tended to be a bit dog in the manger. So it's all a disaster. No good will ever come of it. And so, you know, why should we be we even think about it? I think mm. the scope for a pragmatic approach to how do we make the best of Brexit, you know, that seems to me to be a reasonable question to, to ask yourself. The problem I have is that that crowd, as it were, seem to begin with the premise that Brexit is a good thing and there are lots of advantages of Brexit. Now, in my view, a reasonable person would say, well, just a minute, there are some things about Brexit which are clearly not good. I mean, you know, the trade intensity of the economy has fallen. There are impediments. There are problems uh, of um, free movement, etc., which, you know, are ones which are bound to have some kind of depressing effect on the economy. So how can we work to avoid them or to mitigate them. That seems to me to be where we should be, not a kind of opportunities of Brexit frame of mind, which says, yeah, yeah, of yeah. course, it's a good thing. Of course, it's a good thing. But it isn't entirely a good thing. Mm. Uh, so I, I find myself a little bit tricked in between. I think there'd be, a, there'd be scope for a council of economic advisors, which had one or two people who thought slightly positively about Brexit, but more realistically, ones who said whose attitude was, well, here are the inevitable disadvantages, 
of leaving the largest free trade area the world has ever seen. That's a disadvantage. How do we conduct policy in a way that mitigates the impact of that? I'm glad you mentioned freedom of movement because another pattern which emerges from your book and which I didn't expect, to be honest, is that at key points, the Treasury has been very shy about making a full-throated argument for the economic benefits of immigration or the effects of lack of it. Why do you think that is and and how can it be fixed? Because I'm left here looking at an ageing population, a declining birth rate, severe labour shortages and yet incredible hostility to immigration. And I think if the Treasury doesn't make that case, who will? I think that you do need to look a bit harder at the numbers here. I mean, what we've actually had is um, no reduction in immigration. We've had a significant change in the composition of immigration. What we've had is fewer people from the European Union, particularly from the Eastern countries, and more people from India, Philippines, etc., who have come in under various arrangements for shortage occupations and that kind of thing. There hasn't been actually a net reduction in immigration to this country. It's continuing, but of a different character. Now, on your question about the Treasury, I think that is an area where the Treasury does feel a bit constrained because, you know, it isn't in the Treasury's job description to be in charge of immigration. And they recognise it's particularly sensitive. So they've tended to operate, and chancellors have tended to operate, on a sort of below-the-radar basis, not with a full frontal attack on immigration constraints, but saying, look, there are these bottlenecks in the economy which we need to deal with, and some of these are ones which are susceptible to an increase in quotas here, an increase in quotas there, And they have been quite successful, actually, in persuading the government, for example, in areas like students, you know, where actually this was sort of pre-Brexit, in fact, under Cameron, the government stopped allowing people to work for two years after they finished their degree here, which was always, when I was at the London School of Economics, that was the deal. People came, they paid for a rather expensive master's course at the LSE and spread quite a bit of money around the economy. They then worked for a couple of years in the city to pay that back. And then they went back home. And all of that, that was a terrific deal for everybody, really. Yes, I mean, my counter argument, I guess, as an immigrant would be that there is a qualitative difference in the investment one makes when welcomed and settling into a country to make a life for themselves in that country and when coming on a five-year Visa that is not directly comparable just by looking at numbers. No, I agree with I agree with that. But what I was saying was that the Treasury, you know, has to look at the pinch points in the economy. And they said, look, the university sector is enormously successful. It's a huge export business, effectively. And we are constraining it artificially by this rule, which may have some other justifications in terms of immigration numbers. But, you know, let's try to define these students out of that so that we can... Um, increase the intake into British universities and keep them at the forefront of international higher education. And that was successful. It wasn't, you know, the Treasury didn't kind of march in the streets about it, but they did keep on pointing that out. 
And eventually, the government saw sense and amended the definition of immigration to keep these students <laughs> out of it, which, you know, was a, that was a success. The Treasury regarded that as a hit. Now, if the Treasury stands up and says, you know, we think all these people on boats from Calais should be just allowed in because we're short of workers, that just isn't going to work. And it isn't very strongly rooted in an analysis of particular economic problems. So I think the Treasury has to operate quite carefully in that area. Howard, let me ask you a slightly fuzzier and, and more difficult question. What makes a good chancellor, do you think? The first thing is that they need to be prepared to listen and prepared to set their prejudices aside when they walk in. Because unless you've been in the Treasury before, and a number of chancellors have not been in the Treasury before, you know, then you don't have this framework of looking at the income and the expenditure. So you need to begin by saying, OK, now I've got to think differently because I'm in charge of both sides of this. So I think leaving your prejudices at the door is very important. And I think listening to advice and hearing all sides of the argument. The Treasury loves to argue amongst itself, and that's actually quite instructive for a, for a chancellor. I think the second thing is, you know, you have to be prepared to stand up to uh, prime ministers from time to time. You know, we've seen that very recently. I mean, we saw that with Sunak and Johnson, who eventually the reason he gave for resigning was not to do with parties. It was the fact that he was not seeing eye to eye with the, with the prime minister on economic policy. And occasionally you just have to do that. There are plenty of experiences of that. Nigel Lawson, uh, Jeffrey Howe, you know, this, this has happened yeah. before. You actually finished the book uh, while Sunak was still Chancellor, predicting a long tenure. What is your view of Sunak now in retrospect? Did, did he make his mark? Did he smudge it a little bit during that leadership campaign? The thing about Sunak is that whilst he was in office, I think that his handling of the pandemic was pretty good. I mean, you can argue the toss about the opportunities for fraud involved in handing out all these loans, etc. And no doubt those arguments will rumble on. But the interventions, the bounce back loans, the business interruption loans, the furlough schemes were pretty artful, pretty decisive. Uh, he did work well with officials. They consulted well. We know that from the banking sector. You know, they did come to us and say, look, we're thinking we need to do this. How should we best do it? They listened and they, you know, they took a lot of advice, but they worked very quickly. So I think on all of that, you would have to give him decent marks. And I would give him decent marks also for his overall uh, fiscal setting, because I do think that, you know, we needed to start to show that it was possible to raise some money to pay back some of this debt. So on all of that, fine. The problem is that, of course, he was a Brexit enthusiast right from the start. And he came in to the Treasury thinking Brexit, you know, was a good thing and therefore found it quite difficult, I think, to take policy actions which didn't start from the premise that this was a terrific idea. And in my view, you know, some of the policies you need are ones that have to start from the premise that there are some significant disadvantages from Brexit. And of course, he was very, he was unable to say that. The EU had been a useful shield at times for government and things on things like VAT or state aid or regulation, all sorts of areas, and that's gone now. Add to that three massive interventions in 15 years, bank bailouts, COVID support, and now on energy. And the question is, is Conservative 
doctrine of low tax and a small state in ruins now. If you listened to the debate on the leadership election, you wouldn't reach that conclusion at all. No, (laughs) that's true. The rhetoric remains that the target of the government is a small state and low public spending and low taxation. One of the most wise observations that I heard when I was doing the interviews for this book was one former permanent secretary, Andrew Turnbull, actually, who said the problem is that the British seem to want northern European standards of public services whilst paying American levels of taxation. (laughs) That appears to be where we are, where people want tax cuts. But if you say, well, in that case, should we just spend a little bit less on the NHS, defence and social care? They say, oh, no, no. You are leading me perfectly into my final question, which is about exactly that. You describe it as a fundamental incompatibility between the demand for more public spending and the commitment to lower taxes. And you you conclude by saying something will have to give. Which will give, do you think? I think the commitment to lower taxation will give. The key will be market in, and investor reaction, because at the moment, I think we're at a very delicate point. We've seen sterling falling quite sharply, up to recently, along with the euro, but recently falling further than the euro. Yes, there is a little gap beginning to develop. And we've seen gilt yields rise so that the British government's paying more for its long-term debt than others in Europe. And if those gaps open up further, then we are going to find ourselves in a severe constraint on public borrowing. Uh, And that will mean that taxation will not be able to fall in the way that chancellors or that this government's rhetoric suggests they want. So I think we're at a very finely balanced moment here. And uh, it's a little bit difficult to see how it will go. But you will detect from my tone that uh, I fear that we may well find, particularly given we've got a chronic balance of payments deficit, that we see a significant further devaluation of sterling, which itself will worsen inflation and impose severe constraints on the government's freedom of manoeuvre. So, Howard Davies, on that cheery note, thank you so much for your time and for your insight. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. The Chancellor's Steering the British Economy in Crisis Times is out now and could not be a more timely read. There's a new bunker every day, so don't forget to subscribe. And if you appreciate our work, do consider supporting us on the funding platform Patreon. Just search for Bunker Podcast Patreon. No Chancellor of the Exchequer is worth his salt, said William Gladstone, who makes his own popularity, either his consideration or any consideration at all, in administering the public purse. Too many Chancellors have ignored those words, but equally... Too many have taken the unpopularity of punishing policies as confirmation of their wisdom. In the words of Jason Furman, fiscal discipline begins with being honest. This is Alex Andreo in the bunker saying over and out. The Bunker Daily was presented by Alex Andreo. The group editor was Andrew Harrison. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, and the producers were Jacob Archbold, Yelna Sofronievich, and me, Alex Reese. The assistant producer was Kasia Tomashevich. 
Our marketing manager is Gina Richard. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>